0: Well, we want to be in mezzanine debt. We are willing to give up the potential for unlimited returns, which is quoted in equity. You know, equity has uncapped returns. And as I always say, I've never met anyone who made unlimited amount of money in equity, right? I've seen unlimited losses, but I haven't seen a limited return. So what we want is if we're happy to take a fixed return, and the returns are so attractive to us that they're almost like equity anyway you know but what we want is priority over developer not only in the sense of preferred return but actually legally through priority through lien through alignment of interest the whole lot so that in this essence what we end up having is a developer who has his own capital on the line his own reputation on the line he's got his own personal assets on the line through a personal guarantee and he can't be
1: paid until we are paid Welcome to XN State. Where's the greatest opportunity in real estate today? That's what I need to know. We'll hear from industry leaders with boots in the ground and skin in the game. Who's winning? How are they winning? Stick around and we'll find out right here on XN State. Hello and welcome back to XN State. This is your host, JCQ. Today we welcome a special guest who brings a global perspective to real estate investing. Based in Malta, Tiho Burkan runs The Atlas Investor, a personalized service helping investors gain access to attractive private deal flow with a focus on real estate strategies. Tiho manages investments on behalf of his family and other high-net-worth individuals and family offices across the globe. In today's interview, we discuss the risk-reward balance between investing in real estate with an equity versus a mezzanine debt structure. We raise the question, is it worth looking outside the U.S. for real estate investment opportunities and how challenging is it to do so? We discuss the demographic segment that will be the global economic driver in the coming decade. And Tio gives us a tremendous detailed look into the hidden gem of the European real estate market, as well as a clear look into what goes into his process of analysis. This interview is longer than what we usually have here on the show. But I have to say that the value in it and the insight that Tiho shares with us is well worth the listen. I do recommend listening all the way to the end. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Accent State. Without further ado, here's today's guest, Tiho Burkan. Tiho, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm really looking forward to this, by the way. And uh, hello to the whole of Texas. Texas and the the US real estate market, hopefully. What part of the world are you today in? I'm in Malta, a place where I reside. It's a
0: small little island. It's uh, south of Sicily, so south of Italy, in the middle of Mediterranean. It's famous for having beautiful climate, probably the world's best octopus,
1: and um, pretty clean sea. Let's leave it at those three. Okay. The, The more I see you sharing stuff on Malta, the closer I get to visiting Oh, well, please, if you do decide to do that, you'll be my guest. I have a beautiful apartment here.
0: I'm very fortunate. So, um, yeah, we we will explore the islands here. It's fantastic sailing. Actually, when I talk about Malta, uh, there's a lot of assets to include. So there's sand, there's sun, there's sea, there's seafood, there's sailing. I'm sure there's a couple of other. I don't know. There's no surfing, by the way, like in Australia. I can't do that. But it's, it's a very nice lifestyle, I have to admit. And it's a very opportunistic place to live as well from the business and
1: tax point as well. Wow, that's interesting. Well, Tiho, you and I had a very good and interesting conversation about two months ago when I reached out to you after gaining a lot of value from the content that you've been sharing on on the internet, on global investing and on, on real estate. And I think you provide a very different perspective from the viewpoints that we listen to again and again here in in the US, I think we're very set in our ways and how we do real estate development and real estate investment. And when I uh, read from somebody like you who are based in Europe, but have a very global perspective, I find it extremely interesting. And I think it's very valuable when a new, fresh perspective is brought into the existing market that in some ways can be very set on its ways. And so thank you for the opportunity to talking about what you're seeing in, in the market and, and what you do and, and all of that. I'm very excited for our conversation here today.
0: Well fantastic. You just killed me with, with all those compliments. I don't think I deserve half of them by the way. You know, so but very, very kind of you and very kind words. And yes, I, I do try to think outside the box I don't think my ideas are new. They're not invented concepts. I'm not uh, attempting to reinvent the wheel. I've had a different kind of mentors, I guess, and I grew up in different countries with a global perspective. Uh, you know, I lived in Japan at the age of seventeen when my father sent me there for an, uh, as an exchange student. I was originally born in Croatia, so which is, I guess, southern or eastern Europe or a mixture of both. I grew up in Australia. Since we migrated there, family lives there now for the last three decades. So that's added to my perspective as well. I lived and invested in Vietnam on a small scale. I love that country, and I, I was living there in my late twenties. I lived throughout Europe. I did a lot of have been doing and still do a lot of work in London, and now I live in Malta. And so, yeah, different kind of uh, perspectives. It's like a melting pot, and obviously different sort of mentors who have done things in different ways. And um, I guess all of that creates or cultivates a personality or an investment mandate that tends to look like as it differs from the majority. I think the majority of people are just parroting each other and uh, copying each other. And uh, he said this and she said that it must be true without analyzing history, the financial markets, the cycles, and um, you know, putting in the effort to, to actually see what is true, what is not, whether the source is valid, whether it's not. And how things have worked before, even before our lifetime, how things have worked, you know, you can, as an example, you can go and dig up real estate uh, data on prices in Amsterdam four centuries ago. And you can see the booms and the busts. And you can see who made the money, and who didn't, you know, when the when Holland was, I guess, had the reserve currency like the US does today. And when they controlled through their trade, 53% of the world's GDP. And it's fascinating. I I actually gone and did that. I sat in the library and I did that. I I got it off the internet and played around with the data, charted it myself, understood the concepts. I I researched why this happened, why that happened. And um, I think it's
1: important for investors. Certainly. So what is it that you do today, Tiho, with all of this information? Ah, fantastic
0: question. So basically... Well, I focus on business and investment opportunities in fields that I believe I have competence. That's one liner that I would say. I manage my own wealth. I started from nothing, and it's been a difficult road. I I went through a lot of failures at the beginning uh, on a small scale, obviously, to do with uh, financial markets and trading, to do with my first business. They all failed, and I'm very happy that they did because I got fantastic lessons out of that. Uh, I also manage uh, the wealth of my own family, which also started from nothing when we migrated to Australia some three decades ago. And then there's a handful of other families and partners who regularly co-invest with us. Some of them are very, very close friends of the family as well. So that's a bit of about what I do in a nutshell. We focus predominantly as asset allocators on the stock market, on real estate, on private debt, and potentially even business opportunities. You see, a lot of the other families—they have very talented sons and daughters who are extremely smart, far smarter than me—and they all do business and entrepreneurship. So then, nobody really wanted to learn about asset allocations and finance and things like that. So I guess it kind of uh, fell onto me. So mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't smart enough to do business. So they—they they just, you know, gave me the key to the door and to keep things protected. So my job okay. is to kind of invest, you know. And when it comes to investing, I think obviously because this is a real estate podcast. Mm -hmm. My job here is to make sure I stay on the topic with real estate. So we do four different kinds of opportunities when it comes to real estate, uh, or you can say maybe four different kinds of strategies. Usually strategies are core value-add and opportunistic. We're mainly in the opportunistic side of things, but sometimes in value-add, but four criterias for deals. First of all, our bread and butter is basically direct. Uh, real estate projects in single family dwellings. And usually this is on the luxury side. So this is something that my father started a business some three decades ago. And uh, we have a history of builders in our family as well. So we do this kind of stuff in Australia. And we also do this kind of stuff in uh, Prague, Czech Republic. But just in general context, it's prime locations. You know, Usually your waterfront, elevated hilltops, prime streets, prime buildings and things like that. The task or the job is turning old dwellings into new refurbished ones or potentially buying sites and then doing ground-up construction of brand-new homes. And the biggest edge that we have here is we have our own contractors and builders in-house, so they work for us in Australia especially. And then we also have various shares in some businesses. In particular, we have a, a small little share in a marble quarry in southern europe which enables us to import tiles slabs other luxury material even they have connections with high-end parquetry and wood flooring and that enables us to keep our costs down so we, or our own materials as well and then finally we do our own in-house design and architectural work as well because we have that and all of that keeps the costs extremely low and it gives us a fantastic edge so yeah and then our risk mitigation policy in this strategy is that we like buying sites or dwellings at off-market. Hopefully we can find something with deep discounts, something where there's a motivated seller. You know, either, for example, a recent one that we bought in Australia was a builder who bought a very large site. He did a, a subdivision. We call it a subdividing block in Australia. And he wants to build on one of the blocks, but he needs to sell the other to be able to finance the construction loan. So he needs more capital. So then, obviously, before putting it on the market, he reaches to people like us and others. And then we make quick offers with cash or something like that where we can get a discount. It benefits us. And also what benefits us? I mean, the question normally would be, well, why would he sell it to you for a discount? Why not sell it for a premium on the market? Well, what also benefits us is he knows what kind of a building we're going to build next to his house. Thus, it's going to increase his value. So he wants more so people like us to be there and less so somebody else to be there. Who might build a second-grade, lower, lower-quality house? Yeah. So from that aspect, that's one of the risk mitigations. The other risk mitigation during later stages of the investment cycle, we prefer to do all cash purchases, which is something that very often people kind of give me a puzzled look. But basically, we would buy the land, we would finance our own construction, uh, pay the labor, buy the materials, all in cash. So in case we get caught in a recession, we'll continue building. And on the other side of the recession, we'll exit as the asset prices hopefully recover in a year or two. And, and luxury is very volatile, as you know. It moves fast down. But it moves even faster up like a rocket. We, we won't have a problem. We also don't have a problem losing the site or the project. And we don't uh, mark to
1: market the property. You mean you mean you don't have a, a risk of losing
0: the site or the project? Yeah. Sorry, I must have said something else. But yeah, we don't have the risk of losing the site exactly uh, during a recession. And you, you're not going to have uh, debt collectors knocking on your door during, right at the depths of the GFC, saying, "Well, we're going to repossess this and we're going to repossess that and uh, and so forth." So that kind of lets us sleep well at night. You know, obviously, some people would say, "Well, that's not very efficient." Real estate leverages the, you know, the mother of real estate's milk. I guess it produces incredible amounts of profit. Uh, leverage is the component of real estate that enables such high returns. So you can be marketed and compared very well to others like venture capital, private equity, to the stock market, uh, growth stocks, and things like that. Well, I think if you buy right, and if you have an edge of reducing your costs, you'd be surprised how how well you can do with your margins in these kind of deals.
1: So this is one of the
0: four different strategies that you invest in real estate under? Exactly. So to continue the story, the other one we focus on is development projects, here, we usually search for attractive opportunity projects where we can co-invest with experienced developers. You know, the focus is on either on ground-up developments or these days, there's a lot of trends of repositioning buildings, let's say from office to residential, from one use to another use. Location prerequisite usually for us is a high barrier of entry, that meaning that we, aren't, we, we are looking at future supply and what it, where it stands. And we don't want to be in a place where there's cranes in the air and there's going to be a lot of competition in 12 to 24 months or 30 months as our project is being completed and and it's being sold we are very comfortable investing in the mezzanine debt portion here so mezzanine debt portion of the capital stack typically deals that attract us tend to be in the us uk some parts of continental europe or australia But predominantly, we're focused on the UK because that's where we seem to have a decent edge. That's where we have very good network and connections. And um, that's where we've been performing very well. Obviously, mezzanine that second charge of the underlying asset, we try to negotiate contract terms and conditions and the covenants, loan-to-values. We don't like to exceed gross loan-to-values of 80% for those that understand, obviously, what that means. But we prefer to be around... 75 or lower, so there's a very good cushion or a buffer between us and the equity portion. And usually, it's the developer, the GPs, and the equity portion. Our target returns that we try to focus on development projects on the mezzanine debt side would be 15% plus, sometimes even higher. We've done, I've done one or 22, and recently we're looking at one right now or two of them, I should say, or 20. One of them is a non-performing loan, and the other one is just a clean development. Durations are between 18 to 30 months and usually we like to have personal guarantees as well on top of the protection that mezzanine that offers us so basically i think what you guys in the u.s call recourse loans or uh, alignment of interest where if something goes wrong we can potentially also go after developers and their partners personal assets and at that point in time the game gets a little bit more serious
1: <laughs> yeah So this is a strategy that I would like to to focus on the conversation a little bit and understand a little bit better. So you invest in essentially ground-up developments around the world, but focused in primarily in the UK. And you invest typically under a mezzanine debt structure, correct? Sure, correct. Okay. So what does the typical capital stack look like in a ground-up development deal in the UK, for instance? How much of it? is conventional construction loan how much of it is mezzanine debt and how much of it is equity
0: sure well obviously it's going to differ from deal to deal there's going to be a lot of differentials there but what i would like to give you an example of is a current deal that i'm looking at and I've, we've been focusing on it and doing due diligence on it for the last uh, two weeks so if if you don't mind i can discuss it as much as you would like and and in as you like so We'll start off with your question. So basically, the typical conventional construction loan or senior debt portion in this loan is approximately the loan itself is 53% loan to value, and the exit with all fees inclusive is about 60% or 61%, just a slightly under 61% of LTV. At that point in time, the MES will come in and the MES will be up to 77%. And then after that uh, the gross exit will be at
1: 82%. So that's 77
0: and 82. So this one's a slightly higher than
1: we what, normally what do. do. Mean, what do you mean, Tiho, when you differentiate between the um, loan and the gross? Or when you mention, when you factor in exit.
0: Okay, exit. Okay. So basically, you have these agency fees or arrangement fees. So basically, you have a senior debt, you'll have a, the net loan itself, which is the actual principal lent, then you'll have a Sometimes you'll have an in fee, as they call an in fee, which is an uh, an arrangement fee, and sometimes you'll even have an exit fee or without an in fee. So, and then on top of that, there's an interest. So the way that we look at it is net loan. Then there is interest, and then there are fees. So, let's say in this case, uh, even though I've signed a, a non-disclosure agreement, I can't go too much into it. Let's just round off some numbers. You know, it would be let's say in this case, it's eight million pounds for the loan a million for the interest and let's say 200 or 150k approximately just to give you some round numbers for the fee and then there will be that would be a gross exit for the senior and that's the primary or the first lien that's the primary priority of the development project then obviously comes a secondary priority which is the mezz so the junior loan you know we invest after that and uh, we would invest from 61 to let's say in this case 77 We'll just round off the figures. doesn't matter if it's 1% up or down. And then the interest portion of that would also be there, which will give us the gross exit. And in this case, it will be something like 82. And obviously, this is a little bit higher than I said okay. that we prefer. But nevertheless, we still entertain these deals because you know, you don't want to judge a book by its cover. At the beginning, it might look like it's a little bit more risky and so forth. But once you do a deep dive into the deal, you realize that this deal is far better than it looks, and there's a, f- a fantastic alignment of interest. You know, the developers have very good track record. It all kind of stacks up. The location is fantastic. We kind of do the due diligence of the whole lot, which I can walk you through. And you, you kind of consider and say to yourself, well, even though this is kind of a little bit more riskier than the normal LTV that we would take, it makes perfect sense, and we, we will probably consider investing in it. And what is the
1: interest rate in this case for the methane portion, <laughs> um, or, or, or if you don't... If you don't uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just round
0: it off. 17% per annum flat. Okay. So it's 15% annual interest compounded monthly. So when you work that out, it'll, it'll end up being 17% per annum, just slightly higher, but we'll just round it off at 17. So the okay. total return, gross total return, will then be 34% over 24 months. That's the target duration and that's the target interest rate. What's the duration for the project? Uh, 24 months. Okay. So typical construction projects that we're in, development projects that I'm just discussing right now with you, would range between, let's say, sometimes you can you can get something for 18 months, but usually, let's say, 18 to 30 months with the sweet spot being 24 months. That's the target. So it's two-year target. And obviously, as you probably know, with opportunistic real estate strategies... It's a higher risk, higher reward. So it's not cash flowing real estate. So these kind of interest rates are paid at the end as an interest balloon payments. They're paid at the exit of the project. When Senior exits, they get their principal and interest. When MES exits next, they get their principal and interest. So you're not getting monthly cash flow uh, because the developers are not charging anybody rent. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So in this case, you're. Uh, seen in a traditional way, it seems to me you're forming between 15 to 20 percent typically of the capital stack you're providing.
0: Yeah, and- mezz- yeah, mezzanine would be somewhere there. So, obviously, th- this came about after the GFC more so. After reading some history on real estate debt and, and so forth, and listening to interviews with prominent investors like Oak Tree Capital, Howard Marks, and some others, basically, you come to a realization that uh, after GFC, Dodd-Frank and Basel 3 rules and many others. So when you
1: see, just to clarify, GFC, you mean the global financial crisis?
0: Of course, I apologize. So the 2008 Lehman and GFC, yes. Post that event, obviously, real estate was the primary catalyst for bringing down the global economy because of leverage. Surprise, surprise, here we are again at a similar point. Maybe we can still leverage some more. Let's see how far we can go. But, you know, uh, give it to humans. They're not going to disappoint you in that task when it comes to risk-taking. But obviously, after the GFC, we attempted to learn some lessons about leverage. And clearly, we failed, but we attempted through Dodd Frank and Basel 3 and OECD rules and all kinds of things like that. And banks were put under scrutiny, especially for construction loans and, and not, you know, they removed trading desks, uh, proprietary desks, and people had to be assured that their deposits weren't speculated with in construction loans with very high, we call them stretch senior LTVs or something like that. And, and then also certain banks couldn't even do that kind of stuff. They couldn't trade anymore. They couldn't lend to construction loans anymore. The, the investment banks had to take that over predominantly. And then the LTVs fell. A lot of the, the loan to value ratios were sitting, I think, prior to GFC around 2006, seven was sitting on average around 80% for senior which I've seen from, I think, a JP Morgan report. I just laugh at that. And now they've come down to around 65 over the last several years. So that's that's a lot more healthy. So, you know, now that, that this report was published in 2016, so I don't know what's happened over the last four years. I wouldn't be surprised if we're taking on more risk again. But um, obviously somebody had to fill that gap. And typically the way that you guys do it in the United States, I believe, is when you're doing a development. I've had a lot of deals put in front of my face is that they'll borrow 60 to 65 from the bank, which you guys call construction loan, and then you'll formulate or create a partnership where you'll have a GP and an LP. GP will be running the development and LPs will come in as equity investors. They would ca- have some kind of a preferred return. I don't know what it is. You know, Different deals carry different preferred returns and then there'll be some kind of a split and a promote and a waterfall structure and so forth. We don't want to do that. Okay, we don't, no, thank you. We don't see very good alignment there because we're all sitting in equity. There is no priorities over one over the other. So what we will prefer to do is that block between what the developer can put in as their own equity. Let's say in this case, I'm looking at a deal in front of me. They got about a million pounds on a 15 million pound GDV. And by GDV, I mean gross development value or the total sales, let's call it the total sales. So they'll pr- put in a million and they need obviously something like 4 million to finance together with a senior loan they need additional 4 million to finance the overall cost of construction just to round off the figures well we want to be in mezzanine debt we are willing to give up the potential for unlimited returns which is quoted in equity you know equity has uncapped returns and as i always say i've never met anyone who made an unlimited amount of money in equity right i've seen unlimited losses but I haven't seen a limited return. So what we want is if we, we're happy to take a fixed return and the returns are so attractive to us that they're almost like equity anyway, you know? But what we want is priority over a developer, not only in a sense of preferred return, but actually legally through priority, through lean, through alignment of interest, the whole lot. So that in this essence, what we end up having is a developer who has his own capital on the line, his own reputation on the line, He's got his own personal assets on a line through a personal guarantee, and he can't be paid until we are paid or the senior debt is paid before us. So in other words, the alignment of interest occurs, in my opinion anyway, or the people that I work with would agree with me, is that what is good for a developer is to try to make the most amount of money. But when you know things don't work out so well, we want to make sure that they will do a best possible job to mitigate the risks in the deal because they have so much riding on the line that their equity and their profits is actually our cushion or a buffer. So as they start losing money, we don't mind. As they're getting more and more punished, we don't mind. And if there's a profit there of three million pounds and an equity investment of a million, that's four million pounds worth of mistakes they can make. And we can still exit, let's say, at a break even or a gross exit or half of our interest full principal plus half of our interest. All of a sudden, the picture changes because now we're not all sitting in an equity stack. We're not all going to suffer a a permanent loss of capital or a potential loss of profit. They will, and we won't. And the longer that the deal goes on, whether there's a construction delay and a cost overrun or whether there's an inability to sell the units and exit, their profit declines and our interest penalty increases. So our interest is occurring. So it's constantly going up. So it's in their best interest to finish the project as quickly as possible on time without a cost blowout and to sell it as quickly as possible. Otherwise, we have penalties in our covenants over legal terms that constantly keep increasing our interest and it's declining their profit and eventually starts eating in their equity buffer. And at that point in time, the situation, in my opinion, is completely different. People who are involved in in, in the actual deal think in different ways. You know the reputation, the equity, the profits, the compensation—it's it, all kind of stacked in a different way, and therefore, I think the, the alignment of interest makes the deals a lot smoother for us.
1: What's the most interesting to me is that—I mean, when I when I hear you say that and you convey the protection that you have by investing under a mezzanine debt structure versus equity, the protection seems clear. What I'm very interested by is the fact that you're able to achieve interest rates uh Sixteen percent you mentioned up to even twenty two percent when yes. a lot of the uh, equity investments at least that we've seen are in that same range. Yeah, well, this is what I would like to convey to you. We are basically
0: sitting in a portion above the senior debt. so the way that in United States you you structure the deal is you have a construction loan or senior debt up to sixty five or seventy percent, and then you have thirty percent of equity right? That's a big portion of the project of the overall cost. 30% of that overall stack is trying to make a return. And that's a far larger amount of money that you need to get a a multiple on. In our case, we have a senior debt that sits up to 60, mezzanine that comes up to 80. And that's the leverage. So in other words, the developer is leveraged by 80%. But there are different stages of that. So if you I guess if you understand what I'm trying to say is you have a bigger investment base in the United States. Uh, you, from the deals that I've seen, you're not using mezzanine debt, which can further lever up the equity. But we don't want to do deals that go too far into the equity side. You know, Once you start getting over 80%, even though you're in mezzanine debt, truth be told, you're actually entering equity portion. And, and uh, on that side, very quickly, things can go wrong. So that's why we always say we prefer our mezzanine debt to sit around 65 to 75. We're willing to go up to
1: 80, in this case, even uh, uh, over 80. But there's got to be a good reason for that. Mm -hmm. Have you invested as mezzanine debt on on an investment that went south? Of course, of course. But actually, we're just picking up a deal
0: right now that went south, but it didn't have mezzanine debt. It had senior debt and equity. And it's in central London. It's in an area called Hackney, uh, which is northeast London from the prime area. And uh, the deal, basically the contractor went bust in a deal 12 months in and all kinds of issues occurred. I'm not going to get too deep into it. And now we're investing a mezzanine debt portion into that deal to take it over. We're going to be putting in our own contractor and finishing off the deal. Uh, obviously, has when somebody's already done the demolition, when somebody's already done the foundation's. Uh, Whenever somebody's already done the framing and even started working on the facade and things like that, a lot of the heavy lifting, let's say, a lot of the moving parts, which are risky, have already passed. But yes, we've been part of deals that have gone south. But unfortunately, up to this point, we have not been, fortunately for us, we have not been in a position where we've been hit very hard. But we've seen developers finish off the project and work for free. Basically, their whole profit would be wiped out. And in some cases, even they would start losing some of their own equity. And we haven't been part of a project yet over the last five years that we've been investing in this kind of a strategy where we've completely had a developer be wiped out. So, one of the reasons potentially why that has happened is that we don't like working with any kind of a developer. We try to work with developers that have clean track records and they have been around for at least more than one cycle. So, a lot of people that you can kind of meet. In these seminars that are happening today, uh, that we discussed off the podcast, and in these uh, coaching seminars, and in these you know networking rooms and, and people like uh, financial clubs for real estate and so forth, is that a lot of these people started investing in real estate after 2012, after the bottom, you know, and they've, all they've seen is the rise of prices. They're all quite young investors and so forth. We don't want to work with young. Managers or young GPs. You see, there's a famous stock market investor, hedge fund manager called Stanley Druckenmiller, and he was a, a he used to work for George Soros, and he holds the best track record for investing in, I guess, capital markets or financial markets. And he always says that in the hedge fund world, you want to pick a manager that's between, let's say, 35 to 45, predominantly somewhere around late 30s. That's when they have enough wisdom and enough knowledge and enough risk management to handle your funds as a solid fiduciary, but they're still young enough to go and take bold bets and risks. In real estate, it's a completely different thing. We don't want to hang around with 23-year-olds up to 40-year-olds. We want to hang around with those old dogs, those dogs that have wounds and scars on them, and they've been around through the 1990 recession and a bust back when even Donald Trump was feeling it. You know, And I remember his congressional hearing in front of the, I believe it was the Senate or something like that. I can't remember what it was, but he was talking about how the real estate market meltdown was just destroying him in 1991, 92. I actually watched that on YouTube. And that was a big one for UK and Australia. And as well, the GFC of 2008 in Lehman was a lot of pain. So we want to make sure that the developer has been through at least one cycle. In other words, one downturn. So in other words, somebody that started in in 2000 and now has been developing for 20 years and that they have a clean track record, right? What do I mean by that? They don't have a default or a bankruptcy. So we work with those kind of people. We try to find those kind of deals where they have clean track records. You can't always find that. And sometimes you can mitigate the risk in other ways. But potentially, we want to make sure that the location is sound, the leverage is not too high, and the developer or the sponsor that's in charge of the deal has very good track record and it's been around for a while. If you do those three things right, I think you mitigate about 75% of risk. And then if you go into mezzanine debt, you mitigate some more risk because things always go wrong in construction. And if you do all those four things, you know, uh, I guess, I don't know, 95 out of 100, you should be okay if you chose it right. But there's
1: always going to be that odd deal when things don't go right. Yeah. When a deal goes south, there's a couple scenarios. One is As you mentioned, the developer finish up the project while working for free, but that's under a scenario where the bank necessarily didn't take over the asset, but in the scenario where the project really turns bad for some reason while it's under construction and the bank has to take over the asset, that's a case in which your portion of your, your investment would be compromised, right?
0: Yes. I mean, it's possible but it's, it's very difficult for that to happen. So let me explain both of those. So the first one, when the developer is working for free, it doesn't mean that something potentially has gone extremely wrong, but what it does mean is potentially developer has had cost overruns, he's overspend, which obviously comes out of his profit margin. And then maybe the market is potentially even slow and selling those units is very difficult, at which point in time, he would have to give a discount on those units. That would kill his margin even further, and he would completely, in some cases, remove the profit. Now, why does he do that? You see, he does that because the longer he would wait, the more interest there is being incurred by senior debt construction loan and a
1: mezzanine loan, which is even higher in this case. And eventually, he would go into a loss. Or perhaps in a project, for example, it's typical to what we see here if it's... um, leverage that 65 percent with a conventional bank loan the developer may not feel as pressured to sell a certain asset or sell certain units in order to pay off the debt because if it's levered at 65 percent at a five percent or even less these days interest rate then you don't feel as much pressure as if you're having to pay 20 percent interest on a uh, portion of the capital stack plus the conventional loan. And I don't know what typical interest rates in Europe are for bank loans these days. Sure. So that's a very good point. So typically in the UK, I mean, look, it
0: really depends on your location, depends on how much you're borrowing, the LTV, and depends on your track record and your standing already with the, with the bank. But typically between, let's say, construction loans range between, I think, 4 to 8%. So it depends, like I said, how much LTV you're going. The higher up you go and the more senior you borrow, there's a certain point where they'll just cut you off because they don't want to do that. But you can get unconventional stretch senior from, let's say, hedge funds or family offices or something like that, where they'll agree to do a stretch senior or what we call a blend. Typically in Australia, I've seen their family offices do a blend where they take the senior and the mess together and they'll charge like a 12% or 11% on the overall but there'll be certain clauses as well like depending on different country there's different rules like they'll only do the loan if there is a certain amount of pre-sales off the plan or they'll do uh, you know certain criteria needs to be met before they also lend the loan so yeah but look uh, to come back to the original point so the longer the time ticks, the more the developer would feel the pressure. And obviously, he's already made some mistakes. So to mitigate those mistakes and, and not to go into a minus where potentially we go after the, his personal guarantee, he would just try to do what we call like a, a quicker exit. And that would be discounting the price of the units for a faster sale or going to the bank and doing a cash refi once the building is completed. You know, at that point in time, that can buy out the senior and, and the mesdat. But he will be stuck there, I guess, with uh, a group of apartments that he can either rent or sell. It's up to him, really. But uh, the rate of return then falls for him and his uh, limited partner investors who are sitting in equity. You know, and on top of that, obviously, he at that point in time, he can do a, a conventional commercial loan where you would do, I don't know, a 20 or a 30-year interest-only loan for the first five years. And it's at a very low LTV of 65% and it's for every single condo or unit, you know, like a typical residential loan or a mortgage, and the interest rate would then be around two and a half or percent or so. I'm not sure what it
1: is in the UK right now. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So Diho, you call yourself a global investor. You're evaluating different markets constantly across the world. Most of us are trying to find opportunities within a certain market, but you are evaluating the markets themselves and trying to determine where the mo- most attractive opportunities are. And I want to ask you, how do you see the global environment today? Where do you see more opportunities in what markets or for somebody who doesn't have the like country frontiers as their investment boundaries? Because a lot of us do. Uh, sure. Do you take those as our boundaries of investment some, for somebody who doesn't have those boundaries? Where do you see the, the, opportunity, the best opportunities today? So that's a
0: fantastic question. And while I can't call myself a complete global investor, because that would mean that I'm going to go around to diff, like 50 different countries or something, that's almost impossible and uh, not desirable. But we do focus on Australia, continental Europe in the sense of Czech Republic, the UK, and then we've invested before in the US as well. And I'm sure in the future, we probably also will invest in in New Zealand, at least if we buy something for our own family, which we're looking at and developing. But you also said Vietnam? Uh, Yeah, Vietnam, I've I've purchased a couple of condos, but I wouldn't really call that. That's more of a speculation. That's not investing. I was actually one of the earliest people in Vietnam to invest because the market has been always close to foreigners. And I used to live there. And uh, they opened up the market in 1st of July, 2015 or 16. I can't remember which year it was. And I was one of the first people to get what's called a, a, a pink sheet or a red book or whatever they call it, where you have a leasehold property. This would really shock some of the people that are listening. You have a 50-year leasehold on a property. So it's not even yours. And my basic investment was that, it, obviously, this is a speculation, but it, it turned out to, to be very good. But with prices so high in Seoul, South Korea, uh, and I visited all these places, Singapore, Hong Kong. Taipei, Taiwan, and Tokyo, Japan, just in uh, Shanghai and Beijing. Basically, each one of those is, let's say, at least over a thousand US dollars per square foot. The way you guys think about it, we think about it as 10 000 to 15,000 US dollars per square meter. I figured that Vietnam trading at between one to three thousand US dollars per square meter, being some seven or eight times cheaper in some cases was an incredible value and these people had no place to put their money because the bonds were already so low in in, in a lot of these places like japan and and taiwan and south korea even now australia a lot of people flock into real estate and when vietnam opened up news spread and a lot of people would eventually cut they'll be kind of like johnny come lately's so my fortune was that i was living there at time and me and a couple of other investors purchased some condos actually from a korean developer who was doing some really good work from seoul and we ended up paying some very, very low prices. A lot of Singaporean developers there as well. And eventually the prices doubled over the next several years. And in some cases went up even more. It was just ridiculous. And it was a very, very nice sell. Another thing is that foreign investors don't have to pay capital gains tax on real estate in Vietnam. So it was a pure gain. But look, that's that's a story over a beer or a glass of wine or something like that to laugh at. But predominantly we focus on Australia. There's a stretch of it's called southeast australia southeast queensland between noosa on the north and byron bay on the south predominantly two primary cities there are, are brisbane and gold coast then we also focus on czech republic only prague really which is the, a beautiful old city and we focus work there and then we do uk and i said we've invested before in the us as well but you know don't invest as much today we think the us dollar is a little bit higher uh, it could go even higher, who knows? But uh, we're trying to find some value. It's an interesting topic that you opened up, which is basically that real estate needs to be locally focused. I'm going to put inver- inverted commas there. It should be a locally focused strategy. And, um, you know, that's kind of like the conventional wisdom. But for almost a decade now, we have been locals in at least three different countries. So we believe, you know, we try not to have a home country bias because we would rather be properly and thoroughly diversified. And we also don't want to be diversified just for the sake of diversification, but rather diversification occurs because we can find great deals. You know, we can find great deals in Europe. We can find great tax advantages in some of these countries that Australia or, let's say, United States or the UK doesn't have. We also have advantages in the UK and Australia that other countries don't have. So, you know... uh, I think it's a, it's a thing that a lot of real estate investors kind of assume that it shouldn't be done. It should never be exercised, but uh, we continue to push towards the way that we focus, you know, and none of this really happened overnight. We really wanted this. We had a desire to diversify and not suffer uh, home country bias, in particular because in Australia, real estate prices are so high and we don't want to be caught down in, in a massive downturn. Regarding my mentor, actually who used to live in Sydney, he always used to repeat to me a funny quote, which you just brought up on this whole topic. Aussie property investors, I think he said, Aussie property investors won't even entertain other cities or states within our country, let alone consider investing across the border into another country or or abroad. So it took a lot of hard work. There's a lot of trial and error. We invested in relationships. We spent a large amount of time on the ground in London, in Prague. I personally do that. And obviously, with my family in Australia. So you start off small and you grow exposure. But I think eventually, if you put the energy and the effort into something like this, it pays huge dividends. As one really quick example, like why did we choose Czech Republic Prague? Well, obviously, we, we have a great team there. Uh, I'll call it like a rockstar team of people. We have our own contractors and builders that that work really, really great fantastic guys really honest we've done several projects with them now already and i can basically leave things in their own hands and don't even have to be there so not only do you not need to be uh, looking at local deals only i'm trying to now create a location independent business where i can actually renovate properties purchase properties without even being there just by educating and teaching people like my real estate agent my contractor and let's say, mortgage broker and my lawyer, are exactly what I need. So, a team like that, when it's formulated, they know exactly what I'm after. And obviously, we only focus here on luxury, single family luxury. So, the deals are ranging between, let's say, one to two million euros. You know, we're not using leverage. So, it's all cash. So, it's actually one to two million euros. It's not like you put down 200,000 and you buy a million euro property, but you're actually putting in a whole million and then you're putting in extra for renovation and labor and materials and so forth. I, I think it can be created into a location-dependent business where I don't even have to be there, maybe apart from, you know, three or four times a year to visit the place because I, I love Prague so much and they do a, a great roasted duck. <laughs> exactly. You know, and I, I think altogether this pays great dividends because, let's say, the Czech Republic, fantastic tax on, on real estate, very low capital gains tax with great exemptions in place very low mortgages like the average mortgage in Czech Republic is laughable i think it's something like 50 000 to 60000 euros which i think is an average car loan in in the us uh so the leverage is very small the government um you know united states or australia even uk they're incredibly indebted countries both privately and publicly And while that might not matter to some people, I kind of look at it in the old school way, the Austrian economics way. So I think leverage for us is very important because we saw what happened during 2008. Czech Republic has 30% debt to GDP, one of the the lowest in Europe and one of the lowest in the OECD. They also have the best unemployment rate at below 2%, similar to Japan, Uh, trade surplus, not a deficit. A local market is predominantly what moves the prices, and it's not foreigners buying or something like that. You know, in Sydney, Australia, where we don't invest, you had a lot of Chinese coming in, similar to Vancouver, and they were pushing up prices. That creates a bubble, and then you can have a bust when they pull back or when there's restrictions or something like that. We don't want to be part of those markets. Uh, so the leverage is low, you know. Um, look, is there risks? Yeah, there are plenty of risks everywhere, but all of those things stick the box. And then, obviously, if you know anything about the history of Prague, During World War II, Nazi Germany, when they took it over, they didn't destroy it or bomb it. And when the Russians came back the other way, and also when the allies, like the Americans, were were carpet bombing together with the Brits, the, the whole of Germany, including Dresden, they didn't really touch Prague. So Prague is one of those untouched cities during World War II, which didn't get damaged. And why is that important in real estate? Well, the whole old town, which is massive, it's all in pristine condition and it's in the original condition, so it's all heritage. So actually, you can't add any new supply at all. And then they have this incredibly difficult application process, which takes up to seven to 10 years to get a a permit, in some cases, to to touch a heritage building. So we don't like buying the whole buildings, trying to get permits, trying to build new things. It's it's really, really difficult. And the supply, if you look at, for example, I, I saw this on Bloomberg terminal a couple of years ago, They were comparing three Eastern European cities next to each other, which were Budapest, Warsaw, and Prague. You know, this is capital Poland, capital Hungary, and capital Czech Republic. And those two cities, Warsaw and Budapest, they had normal kind of supply that you would see developers adding supply every now and then. In Prague, it was like rock bottom for nine years. Just you can't add any new supply. And prices continued to rise. So the holdings that we have there and the investments that we have done there, we feel that if there's a recession or a bust, such a low leverage market, very, very low debt in the private sector relative to the GDP, a lot of deals are bought cash like we the way that we do, especially in the luxury part of the market, because no one's going to give you loans where the you know p- people are earning so little compared to the Western world. But it's climbing, obviously. It's climbing closer and closer to Germany. But at the end of the day, we feel the prices can fall, but due to the limited amount of supply and very low leverage, we've noticed, like for example, let me give you a quick example correlation-wise. Barcelona and Madrid in Spain, who had a huge bubble prior to the GFC, similar to United States, like places like Nevada and Las Vegas, they came down like 60% in price. They were more expensive than Prague was in 2006, seven, when real estate was peaking. Prague fell less, but it fell. Madrid and Barcelona fell a lot. And then they kept falling and falling and falling into 2012, 2013. Prague bottomed in 2009 automatically. And they, the, the shortages were felt. Okay. Yes, there was loss of confidence. Demand falls. Things were very bad. You know, there was a, the banks were tested. The financial system were tested. It was a scary time. After that, there was a Eurozone crisis when Europe was, you know, tested in a sense of the banking community and, and the industry as well as the euro currency, the single currency itself. So Prague had another little leg down, but it never went lower than 2009 low. So you had like a double bottom. Barcelona, Madrid, in Spain kept going lower and lower and lower. Same with Greece and Italy, still going lower. Okay, And then now, during the recovery phase, Madrid and Barcelona have recovered only slightly. Some prime properties have done well, no doubt about it. But the whole of Prague is now more expensive than Barcelona and Madrid. It's the, Over the long term, fundamentals show their true color. Uh, you know, the fact that they have a fantastic manufacturing sector, very low amount of supply, very low unemployment, very low debt, there's not a lot of speculation going on. And all these things put together basically mean that when prices fall, they, they fall less. And the barrier of entry is very difficult. You can't add new supply. So automatically prices start to recover. Very quickly, when somebody wants to do something, buy something, move somewhere, you know, f- find an investment property or a primary residence, uh, the demand comes back quickly. They built so much stuff in Spain, uh, I think it's going to take them another 15 years to recover. So that's just one example. So I think that's what attracted us to Czech Republic. We didn't just throw a rock and kind of ended up there. We did all of this research, which obviously I'm not going to go too much into depth, but it's really catching up to Germany and Berlin. I mean, I noticed when I was doing a lot of research, for example, in 1990, the standard of living and the wages were about 20% of what they were in Prague, what they were to compared to what they should be in Berlin. Now, in 2018, recently, Deloitte's published a figure that Prague is now 72% the wages have caught up to Berlin. So in other words, and Berlin is a fantastic real estate market to invest for a lot of Germans, and that's the biggest economy in Europe. So if you think about it, you can see how fast Prague is catching up. And obviously, Czech Republic and Prague is just on a border with Bavaria. And that area of Germany is the wealthiest, it's the strongest industrial part. And so it's benefiting a lot. And I think by, let's say, 2035, I wouldn't surprise me to see Prague and Berlin be almost at the same standard or 90% of Berlin's standard. So uh, there's a lot of benefits there as wages continue to increase, the purchasing power increases. But... Czech people are very conservative, and they're very prudent with finances. Leverage is not uh, used a lot in property. Uh, It's not used a lot in corporations. And it's definitely not used a lot by the government. You know, recently, for example, to stimulate the property market even more, because Czech Republic runs a surplus budget, as opposed to a deficit like Australia or UK, definitely, or the US, definitely, and so forth. I mean, there's been a lot of spending by the United States, obviously, and, you know, We're experimenting with MMT, modern monetary theory, or as I call it, more money today. Don't pay for it tomorrow. (laughs) And we'll see how that ends up, obviously. But one thing that Czechs did is they had a surplus. So they didn't have to borrow any more money. And they cut the acquisition costs of real estate in the country just recently during the coronavirus. So we used to pay 4% property tax to acquire the real estate. Now it's zero. So when I'm buying these projects, now I, I have a free entry into real estate and I don't have to pay anything. So when I exit, I pay a small capital gains tax. In some cases, you can get exemptions. And all I have to do is pay a small real estate agent fee. So basically, I can buy and sell real estate constantly without any transaction costs and taxes. And on top of that, why be in a, in a country like that? You know, it's scary, right? It No one speaks English it's a foreign market. It doesn't have U.S. or U.K. laws. Well, I, I'd say wrong to all of that stuff because obviously I have experience there. At the beginning, yes, I was a little bit not say so scared, but skeptical as well. Uh, and you start off slow. We started off very slow. You do a deal for half a million or something. You you, you slowly build your way up. But everybody speaks English. They're incredibly educated. I said that you know I, I haven't lived for a long time in, in United States, so I, I can't comment. But I'd say they're more educated than Australians you know uh, and they speak multiple languages and civil law is very similar now in some cases to common law because european union has standardized the laws across the whole union so it's fantastic there's there's rights of land ownership and judicial system there's proper protection liens you know first charge second charge contracts you know the court system works fantastically well so I'm very happy with all of those things and finally I love the fact that other people remain scared. I, hopefully, I didn't convince anyone in this podcast listening to go and invest in Czech Republic because the more people that come, the less ef- inefficient it becomes. In other words, the more efficient it becomes. We don't want efficiency. I mean, the last deal that I bought is in the most famous street of Prague. It's called Paríška or the street of Paris. It's the most beautiful and the most expensive. That's where boutiques like Dolce Gabbana, Louis Vuitton and Rolex are. It's like, you know like Madison Avenue or something or or Broadway kind of a a street. And I bought an apartment for 1,700 square feet of an old guy who lived there for 50 years and never renovated it. And I bought it off market. And I got a massive discount for it, way below the market value. Um, So I don't even know why I'm saying this because I usually like to hold some of the cards to my chest, but uh, I think um, you're a fantastic guy and I don't mind coming on a podcast and sharing some of the things. But a lot of the times on Twitter and financial publications, blogs and things like that, I'm not going to share everything because hopefully everybody's still scared of Czech Republic and no one's listening to what I'm saying. And they don't go over there and compete with me because, you know, I come from a country where we had a what some call a massive real estate bubble, right? The Australian housing bubble. They've been talking about it for 20 years. One of the things about Australia and the housing bubble you live in is that everybody becomes obsessed with real estate, maybe similar as in Texas, And when everybody's in real estate, everybody knows everything. The price of everything is not a secret. Deals are not a secret. Everything just is out in the open. It's very efficient. And you just can't compete with the big boys. Well, I just, you know, I took some of the business that we were doing in Australia and took it over to Prague. And here we are, fourth project in now. And we've been getting, without leverage, 30 to 50% returns over 18-month projects, let's say, without leverage. You know, massive downside protection. All equity, all cash in case of recession. I mean, we're getting discounts in some cases, 15 to 20% just when we buy. I mean, there's an old lady that's selling it. She's 87. She just, she found out now that, that her apartment is worth a million euros, okay? And she would love to sell it. And I just say to her, look, I'm not going to give you the best offer, but I'm going to give you an offer that's going to be 14 days all cash in your bank account. Okay, when the contract is signed, and you can just walk away with eight hundred thousand euros right now, or you can sit around in the market for eighteen months, or for twelve months, or nine months, trying to sell a luxury property and it needs renovation. And most people in Czech Republic, you know, they're not really into building. You know, there's a huge culture in Australia or property flipping. There's a huge culture in the U.S. of doing the same thing. You know, people love doing that kind of stuff, and it's a fantastic way to make a primary or even a secondary source of income couples do it, wife and husband get into it, families get into it. In Czech Republic, no one's doing that stuff. I came from an Australian market, <laughs> which is kind of like a big bubble and everyone's talking about real estate at barbecue. I came to Czech Republic and nobody cares. And I was like, oh my God, this is an untouched haven. No taxes, low taxes. Like, you know what the property taxes are in Czech Republic to hold my property? Zero. You know, I think in Manhattan, they pay something like, what, a couple of percent a year on the luxury properties? They're getting killed. I don't even know how people make money there. You know, I, I don't have any interest costs. I don't have any tax costs. I have some, maybe some capital gains taxes, which tax treaties can even – within because I live in the European Union, which they can be even reduced lower, in some cases, exemptions. I don't have any property acquisition taxes. I have nothing, and I have incredibly cheap labor. Uh, we control our own materials. Yeah, I mean, when I look at it, for me, it's a no-brainer. And the fact that everybody's, you know, I'm going to do inverted commas now, but Eastern Europe, ooh, you know, spooky music. I love it. I hope it stays like that and people don't discover it. But I think I've just ruined it with this uh, (laughs) for 20 minutes. So I'm going to have like three Americans and seven Aussies now in Prague next year running around buying deals that I should have gotten. But I,
1: I think I'm going to be doing it with leverage. <laughs> but, but I think if somebody from listening to you right now decides to invest in the Czech Republic, I think the first thing they would do is reach out to you and try to do it through you. Um, I
0: forgot to tell you the best part of the whole story. Okay. They have the best beer in the world. You even have Germans who are renowned for great beer, who travel across the border to drive to Prague to drink uh, staro premen which is like a world-renowned beer they say it's something to do with the water and the river i don't know but man like i know my brother is not a big fan of beer and when he comes to prague he's part of our real estate business he's actually headlining the the, the renovation thing he's an architect as well as a project manager and when he comes to prague to have a look what we're up to and what we're doing and just to double check on things he actually has beers with me You know, you never see him even drink beer in Australia, where beer is is a famous thing in culture, but he loves Czech
1: beer. It's just smooth. Well, Theo, thank you very much for all that information on on the Czech Republic. And also, it gives us a great insight on your thought process when selecting a market and the things that an investor needs to consider when evaluating a market and what's important, what isn't. We, we won't send this clip to the Czech Republic Economic Bureau, although I think they would really appreciate it if we did. Thank you for that. My, my question after hearing all of that, which really sounds like, I mean, I'm sold on, on the Czech Republic, but how would somebody, an American who lives in the United States, go about investing in the Czech Republic? I think it'd be pretty far-fetched for somebody here to consider doing a direct investment and what you're doing and buying properties to, from an old lady to renovate. I think we wouldn't even consider doing any of that from over here. It'd be too difficult. But if we somehow wanted to get exposure to the fantastic fundamentals that you just outlined, how would somebody do that? And what what, what are the hurdles for a, an outside investor to get access to a market like that?
0: Sure, well, just for full transparency, never say never, because one of the deals that I did, I had a, a client and a friend from Boston go half half with me on a Czech Republic deal. So never say never. It, 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 there's an American who's already done it. But obviously he leaves it in my hands and and we would just go and, and do an all equity deal, no leverage. He loved it. He loved that concept. It was so it, you know, took him by storm. He's like, "Oh so you're not going to borrow any money?" <laughs> and I'm like, no. We're not going to borrow any money, you know. He he really liked that, but how would you do it? Well, you, I guess you do it the way that I did it. You're gonna to have to, if you wanted to do it. That is, you jump on a plane and you go and investigate what is happening there. You know, as a caveat, I have to say, you guys do. You guys are spoiled for choice. You live in a huge country, most liquid real estate market, most efficient real estate market. And uh, just a disclaimer: I'm not sure that that's always the best thing, but it, it could be you know, Czech Republic is inefficient, and that's why I like it. And you live in a, a market that has incredible uh, system laws, financing, and you have amazing, I'm very envious and jealous of this, you have an amazing tax system, you know, with a 1031 exchange and depreciation. And if you're a real estate professional, you can basically, you know, if you do a certain amount of hours in real estate, I'm sure you know better than me, um, you can depreciate. You can use your depreciation losses and claim it against your income. There are people that I know in California that are making several million dollars a year in an, uh, of actual active income, and their passive depreciation from their real estate wipes it all off. It's just incredible. Uh, you know, there's guys that don't pay any tax there as well. So you don't have to really do this, and I hope you won't. So you can leave Czech Republic to me. But jokes aside, yeah, if you wanted to do something like that, you can also contact me if you wanted to do like a partnership or something like that. But, you know, we, we select these people. I mean, I've only done it one time and because I, I know the guy and I trust the guy. But yeah, it's not something that I'm going to be a GP or I'm going to expand the business. i I'd rather just have the deals to myself, to be honest. But sometimes if, if some family wants to participate with us and we're building a longer term relationship, whether it's in, you know, UK or Czech Republic, yes, uh, I will open the doors to that and with full transparency. But normally I just travel there as a young man and I just asked, I, you know, I, one time I watched an interview with Robert Kiyosaki and I know he's not the best, you know, we, maybe we should be quoting Sam Zell because he's also invested in India and China and Hong Kong and I can't remember all these places. He's invested in Europe. So he's an amazing real estate investor. But I remember watching an interview with Robert Kiyosaki and he said, Whenever me and my wife go on a holiday somewhere, whether it's another American state or in Europe for, for a summer holiday, as soon as we land, she goes to a boutique and she looks at high heels and I go straight to the real estate agency. And I guess that's what I do as well. I mean, I always learned that thing. So whenever I, when I came to Prague or when I came, you know, when I came to Budapest, I saw even better opportunities, too much to discuss right now. We never got into it. I, I didn't find very good connections and network there. I didn't build a good team, but in Prague we did. He took some time and some energy, effort, and investment, but he paid dividends. I think you just have to go. There's an old saying, if you never, never go, you'll never, never know.
1: Yeah. And do you have an idea, Tio, of of the legal and tax implications and hurdles of investing in Europe from the U.S.?
0: Of course. Uh, Well, first of all, U.S. and Europe have a fantastic tax treaty, a double tax treaty. So generally speaking, the way it works, but you have to consult your tax attorney, you have to consult your accountant and CPA or whatever you guys call them and whatever they call them in different countries. But the tax treaty makes sure that you don't get double taxed. So let's say you're investing in UK mezzanine loans. UK has a withholding tax. That's another advantage. We didn't discuss a lot of the advantages of mezzanine debt, by the way, over equity, because we were focusing on certain topics of that one project in particular but away from the advantages that you have which are basically the alignment of interest and you know another advantage of mezzanine debt is the defensive asset class which focuses on capital preservation but it's a hybrid between equity returns and uh, senior debt or debt like protection another great advantage is that interest is taxed globally everywhere if you look at uh, withholding tax rates at a much more attractive rate than capital gains. you know. So for example, if you're investing in Australia, the capital gains tax is 30% of your profits. In United States, it's probably something similar, right? Obviously, you guys have 1031 exchange. And as long as the current president stays in power, that's not going to change because he's a real estate guy. But maybe they'll change sometimes. I don't wish for that to change to you guys because you guys are doing a fantastic job with that. It's making everybody a better investor. But in Australia, we don't have capital gains exemptions as good as that. We do in some ways, but not all. But interest has a withholding tax of only 10% in Australia, and capital gains is 30 You see, so lending money is far more attractive than actually investing money as an equity holder. Now, people will say, well, you can make us so much more money in equity. Yeah, but I don't think so. If you can find deals at, at 12 or 15 or 18 or 20% mezzanine debt, you're doing just as good as equity but you have far more protection and far better taxation. So net, net, you'll be probably better off, at least in Australia. In the UK, withholding tax on interest is 20%. Capital gains are 28. Once again, that same thing. In Czech Republic, it's the same thing, right? Interest is taxed at a lower rate than capital gains, but Czech Republic is very low taxes across the board. It's like basically in teens or even single digits and then depends also where you live we have offices in hong kong and malta those are two financial hubs let's say that are geared towards tax optimization so when we're investing in places like the us we have fantastic treaty with malta when we're investing in uk oh we have a god-given treaty with malta you know we, we save a lot on taxes so that's really good hong kong also we use for asian investments in some other parts as well so it really depends for united states you know, you, you would pay taxes only once. So in other words, if you were to invest in a mezzanine debt in United States, you would have taxes to pay on the interest gain. If you invest in the UK, you would have the same taxes to pay, and then you wouldn't pay them again in the US. You'll get a UK tax credit, and then there'll be no taxes to pay in the US. So usually it works that way, or the withholding is not held in the UK. You receive all of your funds back in the US, and then you file your own tax return there. And then you pay local taxes in the, in the U.S. as if you invested in a U.S. deal. It's really not that complicated,
1: mm-hmm. especially yeah. if
0: you use a, a tax attorney that focuses on things for expats or foreign investment, like a foreign outflow. So when, you're, yeah. when, when you have capital that's, that's flowing into other countries and these kind of people are really, really skilled at understanding which type of IRS forms to fill out and how that income is perceived. One final thing I would say is that we have – we uh, actually, the United States encourages foreign investors like us not to do equity deals. This is for anybody that's listening that's a GP. We're actually encouraged to do debt deals because the IRS has a special – I forgot what the form is, but my uh, uh, tax accountant knows. But you, if we use a foreign corporation and we lend money into a, a project in the United States and we have no control over that project on the GP – or as an LP or something like that, but we just lend money directly to it, the IRS won't give us any withholding tax. We will actually get the full principal and full interest back without paying one cent in your country. And if we do it from a place like Malta, we also don't have any tax to pay in our own country. So it's actually far better for us to lend money in debt form to United States, especially if we can find attractive deals, than it is to participate in equity because foreign investors cannot get always the same benefits as local investors. In the U.S. with 1031 depreciation and all these things, but we do get the benefit of lending money, which is very interesting. So your government is encouraging us to be mezzanine investors and senior debt investors as opposed to equity investors. But
1: you know, it depends on people's preference. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Certainly, a lot to understand there, and, and obviously that has to be done on a case by case basis. But as you said, a lot of times. These topics seem more complicated and we expect them to be more complex and expensive than they end up being in reality once you consult a, an expert and understand the, the actual topic. Tiho, are you ready for our fire round? Yeah, let's fire it away. <laughs> Perfect. What's the book that has had the most profound impact on your life?
0: Well, wow, that's a great one. Can I do three? Sure. Okay, because all three did, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Mr. Carnegie, Napoleon Hills, How to Think and Grow Rich, and then The Honest Wealth Accumulation Story and The Pros and Cons of Money, How to Get Rich by Felix Dennis, The UK Billionaire, which I just thought was the best book to read on money. So okay. those three
1: influenced my financial career. Okay. The third one that you mentioned, How to Get Rich by Felix Dennis. Yes. Okay. That one I hadn't heard of. The other two phenomenal books, but I'm going to look this one up.
0: Yeah. The third one is a fantastic read.
1: What's the single most important skill to have as a real estate investor?
0: Negotiations, straight off the top of my head. People skills, negotiations. Basically, how to win friends and influence people. Book will help you with that. But I think it's about if we think about real estate. You have multiple wealth generators. Obviously, you have market price moving up and down. You have forced appreciation when you push it up yourself through everything we talked about. You have uh, you know tax advantages we talked about. You have debt pay down, and you have uh, positive cash flow. Those are the five that people talk about. Number six is negotiations. That's a massive wealth generator that you can't use in a stock market or any liquid uh, efficient market where you can't negotiate. I have made more money in a place like Prague negotiating the exit and entry price than I did with all the work, all the labor, all the muscle, all the effort for all the six months combined. Yeah. Just in that one meeting over a coffee or, or a great Czech beer. Negotiation can make or break deals and make you fortunes. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. That's a great answer. Tio, what's a real estate trend that you're paying attention to? And if you don't mind, I'm going to answer this one for you because I've heard you talk about this before and i want you to talk about uh, too many things if if you can talk about this the you've talked about i've heard you talk about the asian millennial and how that's a trend that you're really paying attention to can you tell us a little bit about that trend in particular wow that's a fantastic one um look
0: let me be honest and direct here as i often am and uh especially because i respect you so much thank you for being podcast I'll, i'll say like this many people in my country think that when i'm stating facts it's a little bit unpatriotic and pessimistic when i say that the asian millennials are the future of the global economic gdp and the activity you know and kind of you, you just get a bit judged but to me it's just being realistic we have to acknowledge what is instead of what we would like to, to be you know i'm an australian originally a european you know north americans and europeans equally we think that we are the epicenter of the global economic activity and the u.s has been since World War II, no doubt about it, since the fall of the British Empire and the Suez Canal incident in the 1950s when the pound lost its reserve currency and the US dollar really took over. But I think this coming decade, the 2020s, uh, that might prove to be otherwise. I think you have about 13 times more millennials in Asia, Asia Pacific region, than you have in either the US or EU, uh, you know, and you have about seven times, I think, combined or something like that when you put those together. These guys are spending about three to four times on entertainment, on leisure, or on uh, consumerism relative to their parents who were huge savers. And um, with that many people, they're going to be an incredible driving force of the global economy. You know, up to this point, it has been the U.S. consumer, but I think it's over-indebted, it's over-frustrated, and it's over-aged in some ways. And Europe is an even older continent. Europe is the oldest continent in the whole of the world. You're not going to have these people have a marginal move of the needle anymore, but you definitely will have the Asian consumer. You know, Asian millennials are now adults, and they are slowly but surely becoming the, the driving, the mega driving force of the global GDP consumption. Um, you know that's why we're focusing a whole lot more on Asia. We're trying to I've lived in Hong Kong. I lived for three years. I lived in Singapore, I lived in Vietnam. I've learned the culture and the custom. I spent a lot of time in Bali, but that's really not proper Asia. That's more like that's full of Australians and you're enjoying the paradise. But, you know, I lived in Japan when my father sent me and I just I think Asia's centuries upon us, whether we like it or not, and I think every family office, every high net worth individual should think about getting exposure to that continent in some way, shape or form, whether it's to the stock market indices, uh, real estate trusts that are listed in Singapore or Hong Kong or, or some other places like that or even doing it directly and i think directly is when you have the highest risk obviously but you also make the most money
1: thank you for that overview to you exactly what i wanted to hear and and our audience to hear as well what's the what's a parting piece of advice that you have for our audience i would
0: say don't let anybody tell you how to think including myself like don't follow anybody if you do have a couple of mentors do learn from them but those mentors should be able to encourage you to develop your own style. I had three mentors in my life. I had my father, I had a gentleman in Sydney and I had a gentleman from the US who now lives in Singapore. Each of them is in different single family, large property developments and the other one was in the stock market and each of those mentors encouraged me to develop my own way of investing that complements my characteristic because investing is not really to do in my opinion let's say, with common sense and logic. You know, humans are generally after quick, fast cash. And investment psychology tends to be lost. The logic and and the fundamentals and the common sense tends to be lost. It's driven by greed and fear. And most of the buying activity, most of the volumes occur near the peaks, cycle after cycle. And it seems that most of the GPs are refinancing their properties. Always it happens near the peaks when the conditions are perfect as well. So I would say learn to be a contrarian, learn to think for yourself. And if you are getting mentored or coached by somebody, let them develop your own style where you will know exactly what to do at each point. Also, don't follow conventional wisdom. Sometimes it's okay, but majority of times, whatever people say, you know, like you must do this or you must do that. For example, one of the conventional wisdoms is real estate is very local. You know, you should stick to your own five blocks and that's it. And you know those five blocks like the back of your hand. Well, I'm here to prove that that's not true. I think you can do multiple things in multiple ways. And if you have entrepreneurial spirit, I mean, if, if somebody told that to Steve Jobs, he would never invent you know, iPhones and iPads and, and neither would Henry Ford with the car or Edison and many things. Now, real estate is not really a reinventing the wheel, but you can think outside the box and you can be a contrarian. You, you don't have to follow the trends. And if people say buy, you don't have to buy. You know, and if people say sell, you should probably be buying. So my advice is learn to think for yourself. Don't be boxed in. Experiment with different strategies. And don't follow the herd, honestly. Like, whatever's working really hot right now, my advice is don't do that. That's where the efficiency is. That's, what, that's what's attracting all the hot money. That's what's attracting uh, the, the competition. You know, as I just said five seconds ago, people are attracted by quick, fast money. If they see somebody else make a fortune in, in I don't know, multifamily or self-storage, which are very, very popular right now, they will just rush into them. and say, well, if my friend got rich, I want to get rich overnight too. You should do the hard yards, understand the fundamentals, and go and look for places which are depressed, but with a caveat. You don't want to just buy something that's going to be a value trap, like retail real estate in the US. It's just too oversupplied. Even if you're a contrarian, it might not work. Sure, there are pockets that are working and so forth, but you want to make sure that there is a, people are neglecting something. They're not looking at it. But there is great fundamentals actually under the surface. Um, exactly. Like the story like Prague. I went there because exactly. nobody else went there. And, and, I, then, and I, I made millions of, of, of euros profit so far. And I hope nobody else comes there.
1: Yeah. And clearly, the reason why you went there is because of the fundamentals. Because you gave us a, a fantastic walkthrough of why you made that decision. And it's because you answered all those questions for yourself and it made sense to you. And that's why you were able to really give us the overview that you sure. did on what you made heavy
0: Every single person that I, when I went to do a first deal in Prague, hesitated to, to do any investing with me or it went further and they made sure to tell me that I was completely out of my mind. Okay. And I, you know, as my mentor always used to say back in the day, the more people laugh at your idea and the more crazy they call you, the higher the chance that you're onto something good. You have to be careful. There's always risk, but you don't want to follow the herd. Stay away from the group think. Yeah.
1: Thank you for that piece of advice, Diho. Pleasure. And how can people reach you? If, if I'm sure a lot of people are going to have questions and whether it's questions or whether want wanted to reach out to you to learn more about something or to find out how to invest or take advantage of these opportunities, how can somebody do that?
0: Well, first of all, thank you for asking that question. Normally, under normal conditions in the world, I would say, please jump on a plane, come to Malta, let's go sailing and let's grab some octopus on the grill and let's enjoy a couple of weeks to get to know each other before we do business. Because the way that we do it in Europe and the way that it's done in Asia is we do do relationship building and see if we can trust each other before we work. And that's very, very important for our family. Uh, I think we, you, you develop that kind of a relationship. You can know what to expect from the other side. But since we have COVID, and not a lot of people will be jumping on any planes right now, unfortunately, and travel is is restricted, if they wanted to have a chat, if they wanted to uh, ask some more questions about what we do in the UK or Czech Republic or Australia, they can either reach me on my Twitter. Maybe they can send me a, a private message or something. Or my, my handle is at so T-I-H-O-B-R-K-A-N, very unusual name. It's my grandfather's name, by the way, Tiho. Or they can um, you know, email me directly, Tiho at theatlasinvestor.com, or just visit my website and fill out the form, theatlasinvestor.com. You know, obviously somebody gave me that nickname a while back when I started investing in, in different places like Vietnam and Czech Republic. They were joking, they were saying, Man, I'm gonna open up an atlas and I'm gonna pick one place and I'm gonna wonder whether you would invest there or not. You know. I wouldn't invest there, but uh, it was Ukraine. I wouldn't invest there, but, you know, right now it's not looking so bad, actually. J- just as a caveat, prices are down in US dollar terms 80% from their all-time highs in 2007. So I don't know. Maybe we finally hit a bottom in that godforsaken country which has gone through so, <laughs> so bad, such bad things, you know, war and GFC and problems with the territories and everything. And I've been paying, actually, attention to a lot of these countries Average price per square meter or per square foot, let's say, was 300 to 400 US dollars. Now it's below 100. Wow. Yeah. Yields are nine. Like cap rates, as you guys call them, are between nine to 12. Wow. Yeah. I just saw you get even more excited with that. So, yeah, yeah. But look, there is many bad things happening there. Corruption and state of uncertainty and, and, and issues with the law and issues with the currency. It's not that easy. Um uh, but yeah, that's the Atlas Investor name anyway. So maybe, maybe we pick more sound,
1: sound countries with sound laws. Just the fact that you know what or have a preliminary idea whether a, a random country is a good idea to invest in or not—that says a lot about you and what you do. And I'm impressed by how much you know about everything that we discussed, and we kept it. We you did a really good job. or We did a, a good job at keeping it very specific to real estate. But I can't imagine you having, and this is a niche of what you do, having uh, that same wealth of information on the other types of investments. Exactly. Also, do. I'm
0: not really a real estate investor, and I'm not really a stock market investor, and I'm not really a business person or a private ec- investor. I- I'm somebody like, I don't know, maybe like an Indiana Jones kind of a finance guy who's looking for opportunities or searching those old holy grails Uh, that are lost I go to places where there are you know the roads that are not so often taken and that's where I find opportunities but that doesn't mean that there's there's multiple ways to skin the cat people shouldn't do things my way unless it fits their character this really much fits my characteristic and my temperament and that's how I like to invest and hopefully a lot of people that listen today don't follow what I do so they can leave more profits for me
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for your time today. The interview was amazing. It was full of wisdom. And I appreciate your transparency and honesty and directness. And I I really enjoyed it. I took a lot from it. And I think you repeatedly mentioned on, on your Twitter the importance of bringing value. And you more than did today with the information that you shared with us. So I'm really grateful for that.
0: Very kind of you. Like I said, I don't deserve half of those compliments. Very, very kind of you. It's my absolute pleasure to come on the podcast and share some of these things. I don't really do it that often, and I wouldn't want to go this much into depth. But, um, yeah, it's great to discuss this with you. I know it gives you a lot of benefit, and hopefully your listeners a lot of benefit and um, may we see each other somewhere in the world. May our paths sure. cross on an adventure somewhere. Probably okay? Malta. Probably Malta. Like I said yeah. at the beginning, we, be we, have a, we have an eye on it. Yeah, it could be Malta. It could be Prague. It could be London. Sure. It, it could be Gold Coast, Surface Paradise, which is very similar to Miami. It could be uh, you know Singapore. It could be New York. It could be Texas. It could be Austin, Austin Texas, because yeah. that's one place that I want to visit and I haven't visited before. Sure. And the whole world is talking about that place. <laughs> um, maybe I could do an hour interview about that place with you, where I, we change spots, and I ask the questions, and then you do That's the uh, yeah, and then you do the answers because that would be a whole lot of wisdom for me.
1: Sure, anytime. Fantastic, anytime, to heal Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Likewise, thank you so much for having me on. God bless. Enjoy your weekend. Thank
1: you, too. You. you too. Have a good one.